Our second lesson is uh, from 1 John, chapter 5, the first 12 verses, uh, which you'll find on the back page of our service sheet, on the screen, uh, and on page 1228 of our Pew Bibles. 1 John, chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commandments. In fact, this is the love for God to keep his commands, and his commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. We accept human testimony. But God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God which he has given about his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony God has given us, eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has a son has a life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. Thank you very much, David. Whoever has the son has life. Life. That's what Jesus is all about. Whoever trusts in him as Lord and Savior has Life. Life abundantly, now and forever. Life is a wonderful thing to have. It's what we're all after. We're all after more of life as well, in quantity and quality. To preserve what we have, to extend it, and to enjoy the best type of it possible. To get that work-life balance right, for example. But not everyone realises that the best life in quantity and quality, is life in Christ. Whoever has the Son has life. The passage goes a bit further than that as well, in that second half of verse 12, because it gives the negative as well. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. In other words, John is saying the only life that's really wonderful, worth living, is to be found in Christ. Attempted life without Christ is, in some sense, not the true life to live. It's just a shadow 
without the substance. The trees in the back of my house at the moment have all gone green with spring. The leaves have come out. And uh, in the view as well, the, the garden beyond, it's nice to see all the greenery come out in time for summer. But there's one tree that has sadly stayed brown. In fact, it's got greyer uh, as spring has gone on. Because during the winter, some sort of disease killed it off and it's died. It's fallen over and there's no leaves on it at all. It stands out from all the other trees in the garden. It's brown because it's been cut off by that disease from its source, from its trunk, its roots, source of life. It's still there. It still blows about in the wind like the other trees. If it's raining and you stand underneath this tree, it still gives some sort of shelter because it's living a sort of life still, and it's still there, but it's certainly not true life. It's a kind of a fake life. And for us, our source of life is not a trunk, but Christ. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. To be cut off from the Son is to be cut off from true life and to be like those grey, brown trees that have died during the winter. By contrast, verse 1 Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, spiritually reborn into this new life in God. Today's passage tells us a bit about what that life in Christ is like, what true life is like, obedience, strengthening, and sensible. It's a slightly challenging passage today, uh, as the whole of the letter of 1 John has been. But hopefully this won't just be an exercise this morning in trying to comprehend it, but rather in appreciating more of and reflecting more on what life in Christ, this true life, is all about. Firstly, life in Christ is obedience. Now, as soon as I mention the word obedience, um, let me just say it's not saying life in Christ is all about following rules, uh, nor is this passage saying that Life in Christ is about getting life as a reward for being obedient. Rather, obedience to God, following his commands, is our grateful response to the life we are given. The gift of life leads to a life of obedience, rather than obedience leading to life as a sort of wage, a compensation for following God's commands. Let's look again at the second half of verse 1. Everyone who loves the Father loves his child or his children as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands. So as Christians, we're born, reborn into this new spiritual family. God is our Father, and other believers are our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. It's a dysfunctional family where a child cares for their parents, but not at all for their siblings. That's certainly not the ideal. So, verse 1b, everyone who loves the father loves his child as well. That's the picture we want of family harmony in the family of God. And then we get this classic 1 John test of assurance in verse 2. This is how we know 
that we love the children of God. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, hang on, John. We've only got to verse 2 of this chapter, and I'm already thinking to myself, why does this matter? I mean, why do I need to have a test about whether I care, whether I love the children of God? It doesn't keep me awake at night, if I'm going to be completely honest, about whether I really do love Mrs. So-and-so on the church church flower rotor. It doesn't haunt my dreams, whether I really care about for Christians I read about month by month in the newspaper. And I'm not kept awake by questioning myself whether I really cherish believers in China or Argentina or Timbuktu. Those things do not weigh on my mind. Well, those things do matter to John because he thinks they're so closely tied to the question of the vitality of our faith itself. That verse 1b again. Everyone who loves the Father loves his children his child, as well. In other words, you won't find someone who genuinely trusts and loves and believes in the Lord who doesn't also genuinely have some care for those in the family, for their siblings in Christ. Those who are born into God's family don't say, to the Lord, well, thank you very much, Lord, for bringing me into this family. Thank you for giving me spiritual new birth in Christ. I'm rejoicing in this relationship I now have with you. But these other Christians, please just keep them a fair distance away. They're irritating, uh, annoying. They're not not all very intelligent. Uh, They try and talk to me on a Sunday morning, which I find really irritating. Please, Lord, just keep them at a distance, and we'll just keep this between you and me. No, that's not the life that John has in mind for us. Our care for fellow Christians is a key metric of our faith and our love for the Lord. Everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. Okay, so what is then the test of assurance that we appreciate does matter to us? Verse 2. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. Loving God, number one, carrying out his commands, number two. And just to make it really simple for us, John then collapses those two into just one in verse three. In fact, he says, verse three, this is love for God to keep his commands. So we no longer have commandment one, love God, commandment two, follow his commands, This is love for God. This is number one. Number two, uh, all you need to do is follow his commands. That's the metric. That's the test of assurance. Now, we read that, following his commands, and we think the word obedience. How do I know that I care about those Christians in far off or even near places who I don't see on a regular basis? And by extension, how do I know that I am a child of God? Walking in the light, as John has urged us throughout this letter. Observing God's commandments, keeping his statutes, doing his will. Now, immediately, those of us of more tender conscience might be thinking to ourselves, well, actually, I don't do that. I I know I should do that. I know I should follow God's commands, but I don't always do that. I'm very hit and miss about it. Does that mean I don't really love Fellow Christians, if that's the metric, if that's the test, if that's the assurance um, barometer, 
Does it really mean I don't actually love God if I'm not following his commands? Well, John cannot mean that because, remember, this is the apostle who back in chapter one of this letter has said to us, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Let's be honest, he says, we're all uh, sinful. We're all fallen. We all do things wrong. So when he says the test of loving our brothers and sisters in Christ is following his commands, that's shorthand for strive to, aim to follow his commands. Is it our aim and desire and regular, even if not universal, experience that we do walk in God's will, that we do abide by the family rule book, as it were? By and large, we can say yes as Christians, it is. And by so doing, by walking in that way, we honour fellow Christians and evidence our faith in Christ. So life in Christ is obedient. Secondly, life in Christ is strengthening. Now, John is no doubt aware of another immediate reaction when we hear the word command or we hear the word obedience. Uh, even if it's not about picking up spiritual brownie points, as he's made clear. But when we hear that word, many of us just roll our eyes and think to ourselves, oh, rules, 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 ten commandments, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, do this, do that, line upon line, rule upon rule, here a little, there a little. And that might well be our instinctive reaction as well. We don't want to hear about this. Well, let's have a look at John's pastoral response to that in the second part of verse 3. His commands, God's commands, are not burdensome. They're not burdensome. Why is that? Verse 4. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. If our reaction every time we hear about God's commands, his laws, his rules, is to think, oh, burden, Old Testamenty, then rethink. They are not burdensome, John says in verse 3, for Christians. Our faith empowers us, it strengthens us to do God's will and to live his way. Everyone born of God overcomes the world. The world is synonymous in John with sin. So he warned us in the previous chapter, chapter 4, against him who is in the world, as in the devil. And likewise, he warned us back in chapter 2 about loving things in the world. Worldliness is a really strong and dangerous force for John. But Christians can and do overcome it. And in a sense, we actually have already done so. Look at the second part of verse 4. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. It's one of those things that is so certain to happen, that overcoming of sin, overcoming of the world, that it's as if it has already happened. It's it's already in the past. It's accounted as ticked off the list. Sometimes we might hear motivational-style Christian preaching that speaks of empowerment or power in a slightly out-of-context fashion, and it can be quite misleading as to what it's actually talking about. 
This is prominent in the word of faith movement, the kind of name it and claim it theology, uh, where, which pre- teaches that if you simply uh, claim God's promises now, you can bring them into the present and have the power to do that. Uh, likewise, you might be familiar with the very famous long-running Christian TV broadcast, The Hour of Power. Again, slightly out of context. God the Holy Spirit certainly does empower us. They're not wrong about that. We do genuinely have power from him. But it's specifically the power, and primarily the power, to overcome sin, to overcome the world. We may well remain weak in other ways. Weak physically, declining physically, financially hard-pressed, socially marginalized, mentally fragile. But as we abide in Christ, as we draw on that source of true life, we overcome the desire to ignore and disobey God's will and his ways, his commands. And that overcoming is certainly a lifelong process, uh, the lifelong process of sanctification, not an instant fix. And we still struggle in the meantime with greed and selfishness, with bitterness and envy and a host of other challenges. But the promise is that we will ultimately overcome all of them and be fully transformed. And in the meantime, we can look forward to significant and real growth in overcoming those worldly challenges. And with that perspective on commands... I certainly know for myself, I can say with the psalmist in Psalm 119, Oh, how I love your law. I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold, even though I don't always keep them, even though I know that I should. Because I know that by faith, I will overcome the challenges to following them. God is for us. His laws are good for us. His yoke is easy, and his burden is light. His commands, as we see here, are not burdensome. He gives us strength and power to overcome. So Christian life is obedience and strengthening, but life in Christ is also sensible. It's reasonable. We live God's way. He empowers us to do so. But John might be thinking his readers are wondering whether this path is still the right one? Is following Christ the right thing to do? Has God really made himself known in Christ? Okay, so yes, living in Christ, as we've seen, is good and possible. He gives us power for it. But is it entirely sensible? Yes, John says, it is sensible and logical. Just consider the evidence. Look at verse 6. This is the one who came. This is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, this is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. Okay, Spirit, water, blood... What is John on about? What what do these things mean? What sort of evidence is he talking about for Jesus being the Son of God? Well, we're back to another form of John's shorthand. 
he's using these words just to remind us very quickly of big matters of doctrine and Jesus' life and events that have been outlined by him elsewhere previously. So when he says spirit, we think Holy Spirit, who came down at Jesus' baptism in the form of a dove, accompanied by the testimony of the Father. When he says water, we think of that baptism uh, in the Jordan by John, sign of humility and commitment. And when he says the word blood, we think of his cross, the blood he shed there, Jesus fulfilling there his commission as the suffering servant, the sacrificial lamb. There are three that testify then, the spirits, the water, and the blood. How do they all testify to Jesus being son of God? The water baptism by John the Baptist. As soon as we hear that word water, we think about what happens then. John the Baptist himself, as Jesus approached, recognized Jesus, said, Behold, the Lamb of God. He gave that testimony and said, Why do you come to me for baptism? I should be coming to you to be baptized. But to fulfill all righteousness, Jesus submitted to John's baptism, showing that he was part of this covenant community of God, albeit the head of that community, and in fact the one who gave the covenant itself. So the water testifies. The Spirit, he descended that moment, and the voice of the Father came, this is my Son, my beloved Son, listen to him confirming the Baptist's testimony. So the water and the spirit agreed. And then the blood, the cross, well, that confessed that Jesus is the Messiah because he fulfilled there all the prophecies of the godly rejected king, the model of David, the cornerstone who the builders rejected, the scapegoats taking away the sin of the world. Even the mockery of the cross, that sign, king of the Jews, testified ironically to the truth. There is plenty of evidence who Jesus was, and John has just taken three shorthand ways of reminding us uh, the water and the blood and the spirit. But he could have taken hundreds of other examples. He could have talked about the miracles that Jesus performed or the transformed disciples who he came across in his ministry or the day of Pentecost or all sorts of other events and circumstances. The life, life in Christ, he's saying, is sensible. It's perfectly reasonable, as Paul was to testify to Festus. It is coherent. It makes sense. All the testimony agrees. There are three that testify, at least, the spirits, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. That's good for us to consider in regard to our own testimony, our own continuing ministry that continues in the vein of John the Baptist and the spirit at that baptism and the blood at the cross. We're not presenting in that witness a fantasy or a made-up event or person, but presenting reliable testimony of which there are many witnesses about the identity of Jesus as Son of God. There's no such testimony about other characters from history which coheres so appropriately. No spirit descending on Julius Caesar in his military campaigns. No cry about Cleopatra, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
no sacrificial sin-bearing death for Boudicca. But all of those things, the Lord Jesus, and all in agreement, as well as further testimony. Jesus, unique in that set of testimony that lines up about him, so foolish for anyone to ignore it, sensible by contrast to acknowledge it, and the evident conclusion that he is the Son of God, whose word matters, who rose to life from the dead, who gives true life to all who trust in him, keeping us spiritually evergreen, and who will return to claim his kingdom. Let's pray. We thank and praise you, Heavenly Father, for the rebirth you have given us in the Lord Jesus who trust in you. Thank you for all that life means to us, this new family we have, this new future that we have, these new commands about life that we follow. Give us great joy as we live this Christian life, knowing its true worth and value. And so may we joyfully witness to it and to the Lord himself to others. Amen.